G'day guys and welcome to another episode of Stories About Kevin. Now I want to thank you all for all of the listens. I have to say this has really gone off um, and just, you know, other than my thank you, I'm just going to give you some stats that may be interested. Um, so 92% of our listeners are Australian, 5% are from the US, 1% from Canada, but I need to give the real shout out uh, to the following countries. Belgium, Netherlands, Brazil, Switzerland, Finland, United Kingdom, South Africa, France, and I'm not really sure this is a country. I've looked around, and from what I can find, uh, mostly from Finnish people that uh, are saying things on the internet, there is apparently a country called Sweden. So uh, apparently that's where some listeners are coming from too, but uh, from what I can find from Finnish people, uh, this Sweden doesn't exist. It's just more of a... It's more the western part of Finland. Um, so... Anyways, uh, less than 1% of the listens we've had have come from those places, but it's insane that you guys have seen the pod, heard about the pod, and jumped on to listen, so thank you very much. Now, we do have some information coming up on the Veterans Affairs data breach. Uh, We'll be interviewing some experts on the matter. Um, Those are going to be additional episodes to the regular ones, so if you aren't interested, uh, just keep listening to the stories, and you can skip the data breach ones. I'm not going to roll them all into one big uh, mega episode, so they're going to be separate, so you can just skip... uh, the stories and if you want to listen to the data breach you can listen to the data breach now today's episode is going to have a bit of an international flavor to it uh, there are some international stories to read out and i thought it might give a break from the monotony of just aussie stories um, but remember if you want to get your stories onto the pod get them into stories about kevin podcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to get them up so without any more waffle let's get started Okay, before we get started completely, we need to get some legal stuff out of the way with this first story. This story is from an army lawyer. I'm going to use the names as originally sent in because although they aren't Kevin, uh, thank you for having anonymised the names in the story. Um, Lawyers probably do know how to do this kind of thing um, and you know the implications of giving actual names. Um, So I did have to change one name. There is a Kevin in there. Uh, They originally did actually put that person's name. Now, also, I didn't add the chapter headings. They were added in by the author. So it gives a bit of a different vibe. So the setting, Germany, July 2004. Operation Iraqi Freedom has been going on for a little over a year. Uh, Enduring Freedom is still going on too, but already no one cares about Afghanistan as much, which is almost prophetic, Uh, but I digress. The 1st Armoured Division and many of its supporting elements are forward deployed, including the 123rd main support battalion out of Dexheim, a sleepy little town surrounded by Riesling Vineyards. I was a newly arrived defence attorney and I'd been in the country maybe three weeks, while my wife and I were enjoying a fun four-day weekend in Munich with friends from my JAG basic course, my future client, Specialist Stabby, was having quite a different experience. Specialist Stabby had some anger issues. Until quite recently, he'd been deployed to Iraq with the rest of the 123rd's main body. When he decided to pull a knife on his first sergeant, the unit decided they'd had enough. They didn't bother court-martialing him or even giving him an Article 15. They just decided to kick him out of the army. He was set to go, and he was going to get administratively kicked out under a general, uh, general but honourable characterization of service, which is not bad for an assault charge. Unfortunately for Stabby, the story didn't end there. Because the army had time to kick him out, there was a four-day weekend. Now, board on the 4th of July. 
Specialist Stabby started the weekend by taking the train up to Frankfurt, which while there he decided to buy a 5 inch knife. You know, as one does. When he got back to Dexheim, he also decided to pick up a couple of bo bottles of Jack Daniel's Finest uh, at the Class 4, which is the on-post liquor store. My apologies, Class 6 on-post liquor store. On the 4th, Specialist Stabby left the barracks with both bottles and the knife in his backpack and went to a friend's house to start pre-gaming for a party later that night. He then left the backpack at the house and continued to party. At some point, his brain couldn't quite keep up with his intake and he blacked out. Unfortunately, both him and Private Pincushion, he only blacked out. He did not pass out. And based on witness accounts, here's how the rest of the night went. After the night of drinking, Specialist Stabby's friends tried to load him into the car and get him back to the barracks. Stabby had other plans. When he saw a guy he vaguely recognised walking down the sidewalk, apparently he decided it would be a good idea to go say hi. So he gets out of the car, which was still moving, and went to say hi to Pincushion. Pincushion didn't have a great recall of the conversation, since he was also a few sheets to the wind, but evidently it didn't go well. He later recalled that Stabby said, wait right here, and he staggered off. Now, this is where Pincushion decided to dutifully wait. Stabby somehow found his way back to his backpack, retrieved his knife, and returned to the discussion knife in hand. Pincushion, upon seeing the knife, turned around and says, what are you going to do with that? Stab me? <laughs> Stabby, obligingly, stabs him. The first attempt is somewhat blocked. He found his target with stab number two and the blade came within a centimetre of piercing Pincushion's heart. That's when the tables turned because Pincushion was no wimp and Stabby was staggering drunk. Pincushion gets the upper hand, gets Stabby on the ground and starts kicking the ever-loving crap out of him. That is until the adrenaline runs out and he just collapses from the blood loss. The car of friends comes back, they read the first aid to both of them, the military police and ambulances are called. The Hangover Stabby wakes up the next morning in the detention cell in, in Wiesbaden with a pounding headache and bruises all over his face. He's missing several teeth and any memory of what happened the night before. When questioned, he waives his rights and informs the MPs of this, as well as all events leading up to his leaving the backpack behind. But he's not, no idea what, what bone he had to pick with Pincushion and no idea why he wanted to stab him. But since Pincushion had been revived enough to make a statement, that wasn't in dispute. So I was assigned to represent Stabby first at the pre-trial confinement hearing. To no one's surprise, the hearing didn't go well for the defence, and Stabby was moved from the detention cell at Wiesbaden to the pre-trial confinement area at the lovely Coleman Barracks down in Mannheim. So we need to go on and let's make a deal. Stabby was charged with attempted murder because apparently the rule of thumb at First Armoured Division in those days was to charge one level higher than you could actually prove. I knew that wasn't going to stick. There was no way the government could prove he had the intent to kill Pincushion, but I needed to do sweet talking to the prosecutor to get it dropped. There was also a weapons charge. Since the knife was longer than the army in Europe regulation allowed, that charge wasn't going anywhere. I didn't care. Getting attempted murder off the table was the key to success here because the punishment for attempted murder is the same as the punishment for murder. Life in prison, well, up to life in prison. There were two possible lesser included offences the prosecutor could have gone with. Option one, intentional aggravated assault, which would require the prosecution to prove that Stabby stabbed Pincushion with the intent to inflict grievous bodily harm. Or option two, assault with a deadly weapon, which only required them to prove it wasn't accidental and the knife was a deadly weapon. Both options carried the same maximum punishment, five years and a dishonourable discharge. The prosecution chose option one. If it was a contested case, that would have been fine. It's the government's burden to prove intent, and they were going to have an uphill battle to climb, since my client, being drunk as a skunk, 
and having no prior beef with Pincushion, had no memory of the incident. Unfortunately, because we were going for a guilty plea, it became my job to convince the judge, through my client's testimony, that he was in fact guilty of stabbing Pincushion with the intent to inflict grievous bodily harm. Why can't we be friends? We prepped and prepped and finally it was a day of trial. And that's when the good idea fairy bit me square on the ass. Stabby had no beef with Pincushion before the incident. So what if I could get the two of them together behind closed doors and see if Pincushion could find it in his almost, but not quite stabbed heart to forgive Stabby? It didn't work that way. Pincushion was unsurprisingly not exactly willing to turn the other cheek. And for Stabby, remember those anger issues? They hadn't got better. The two of them almost got in a fight in their dress uniform. I separated them and silently prayed to every deity I could think of that the prosecutor wouldn't take the time to talk to Pincushion before getting him on the stand. Fortune smiled upon me in that respect because he didn't. Which is good because it was enough of a slog getting through the guilty plea. The judge almost threw out the guilty plea, which would have meant going to trial for attempted murder. But somehow, my client assured her that based on the available witness reports, he believed he had formed the specific intent to inflict grievous bodily harm when he stabbed Pincushion. Sentencing didn't go so hot for my guy. Remember, he was about to get kicked out for pulling a knife on a guy, and then, get this, pulled a knife on a guy. So out of a possible seven years confinement, the judge gave him five years and a dishonorable discharge. The best deal I could get was four years, so he got four years. Now, there is an epilogue to this, and it's titled, My Lawyer Fucked Me. Fast forward a few months, I was now downrange, still assigned as a trial defense attorney, and I got a call from now Private Stabby's appropriate, uh, sorry, Appellate Defense Counsel. Apparently, Stabby was convinced that he got a raw deal, and that was my fault. Around the same time he went back to Coleman Barracks as a prisoner, he met up with one pr pr Private Kevin, who got jumped by five guys in a fight at the Euro Palace Club in Mines Castle. Kevin claimed self-defense and was accused of stabbing four guys who lived and one guy who died. The army dropped the four assaults and tried Kevin for murder, but he only got convicted of a relatively minor assault charge. The panel did give him the maximum sentence for that assault charge, but it was only three years. Now Stabby was pissed because Kevin killed a guy and got three years. Meanwhile, Pincushion lived and Stabby got four. Once the appellate attorney heard the story, he mentioned he was surprised Stabby only got four years given the facts and congratulated me on negotiating it down. They opted to pursue on other grounds on appeal, but they lost. Sorry, Stabby. Moral of the story remains, though, if you see a guy coming towards you with a knife in his hand, maybe don't suggest ways he could use it on you. The end. Thanks for sticking with me. Now, uh, that was a good one. I mean, I can't, what kind of malfunction do you need to have going on that, like, if someone's drunk off your lid, even if you're drunk off your lid, they're coming at you holding a knife and you just say, what are you going to do? Stab me? I mean, I, like... What I'm saying is I don't know the name of the malfunction that people have in their brains, but I do know quite a few people that I served with in the military myself that would have done the same thing. Um, now, the next one is a bit of a downer. So if you want to skip to the funny stories, maybe maybe tap forward a couple of minutes and uh, get past this one. Because the title of this next one is If I Only Had the Confidence I Have Now, Four, pe four People Would Be Alive. I want to note that this this I want this to be everyone's trigger warning. And if you don't want to hear the following story, just, just skip ahead, please. Now I've changed the involved name of the officer to protect their identity. Now this is your last chance. Hit that uh, jump forward button, jump forward two or three minutes, and we'll get back to you. 
In 2007 to 2008, I was deployed to Balad Airfield. For those who were deployed to Iraq, you probably thought of it as a vacation spot from most of the other bases. The base would always get indirect fire every day, but they had the worst aim. My job at the base was to watch what they called the raid camera, which would look about 4,000 feet out with four cameras facing north, south, east and west. My job was to catch people placing IEDs or anything that looked suspicious around our base. I was Army, but our captain was Air Force. I don't know why it was like that. I was a PFC at the time and I was just following orders. Captain Kevin, I will never forget his name, so much he wanted to catch someone. And on my shift, he found a vehicle he thought placed an IED. Long story short, he saw it, I didn't, and I didn't speak up because of rank and found out that later we killed a family of four. I have two kids of my own right now and sometimes I can't sleep at night because I'm alive and that family is not. If only I was more strict with my captain and told him, no, sir, I didn't see what you saw. No, you're wrong. No, I don't have PID. I hate every time around the anniversary when that happened. I hate that he got a slap on the wrist and I hate that I was that it was okay. Now, that was a bit of a downer. I never said the pod was going to be awesome every story. I started a pod to tell stories and sometimes, as we're warriors, those stories that come in are not always going to be great. There's going to be some crap ones. Now, for those that made the skip ahead, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I'm going to move on now and we're going to get some more fun stories. Um, I'm going to talk for a little bit just in case those that skipped ahead skipped a bit far. They might have to rewind. Like, you know, podcasts, you skip ahead 30 seconds in a bunch of chunks then you get too far into the next story. Then you've got to go back. Then you get back into the story you didn't want to get back into. So anyways, I'm just going to give that a bit. You know, I'm watching the counter so that people can come back, hear the story. Um, and hear me just talking about normal things before we get to the next story. Anyways, that should be enough. This next story comes to us from 1979, South Africa. My dad was posted to a camp near the Namibian or Southwest Africa at the time border. The camp was supposed to receive their rations seven days ago, and being practically on the edge of the desert, food was starting to get pretty scarce. Uh, being in a fairly quiet and uneventful part of the border, it became something of a ritual to watch the flock of geese come in and come flying along a cliff face. A cliff face that had a small river at the base which separated the camp and the cliff face. The flock would come in, almost touch the water and fly off again to somewhere else. The geese didn't come in every day but they did come in every other day, practically the same time, squawking in intermittently. So recognising them coming was quite easy. On this particular day, rations hadn't been received. Camp CO was starting to cut down on the allocated consumption big time. The soldiers are hungry, they're fed up, they've got the bare minimum and the squawking was coming in from the distance. Now the easiest solution to the problem here was get all hands on deck. Every man locked and loaded with full magazines, which are the standard army issue assault rifles. They stand side by side, and can you imagine how tasty that, that goose cooked on an open fire is gonna taste? You know, the smokiness, the thinner bits going crispy, thicker bits getting juicy. You know, maybe you might have to spit out a bullet or two, but nothing to eat for seven days? Well, you know, you're starting to get hungry. Now all of a sudden you're going to have wild roast goose. Man, what a treat. Keep the rations, we're going to have some dinner tonight. The geese start their descent, flying in along the cliff face. My dad, the rest of the camp, they're lined up along each other. Three, two, one. Bang, bang, bang. Every man emptied their entire clip. Not a single goose got a hit on this day. What happened when their rations showed up? Well, that's another story. Now I can pretty much feel this. I've, I've never went without food that long myself or, or on that extreme rations. But I can get into the mindset these soldiers are feeling. I, I, can, I can just absolutely put myself in their shoes. But I do have the next bit, so let's get into it. 
Following an attempt at bird hunting by the entire camp and the rations not yet received, the camp CO sent four groups out. One, to get beers from the nearest Shebeen, which is a shantytown liquor store about 50 kilometres away on dirt roads. The others, two groups to find food without making trouble, the third to gather firewood. My dad with one group in an infantry transporter, they came across a cow without a herdsman, crossing the road. Two bullets, four men, bang, in the back of the truck, lunch sorted. Returning back, they ripped off an old metal farm gate, and there's now one cow-sized barbecue grid that's been sourced. The third group returned with some chickens. Chickens they had to trick the villagers into believing were black magic cursed, and they were supplementary additions to the next few days' rations, which were sorted. Rest of the camp, the CO made preparations in case the ration supply truck showed up, and men were placed on watch with vehicles strategically parked. Groups returning, fire pit built, makeshift grid covered with tin foil, which was one thing they had no shortage of, some semi-skilled butchers in the camp kitchen making short work of the cow carcass. An hour later, getting ready about 1400, bonfire roaring, barbecue coals ready, beers coming out, meat ready, being sliced off and passed around. Dad didn't say anything about the electric spinach, but I imagine that would have been passed around a bit too. A few days later, which was nearly two full weeks overdue, the ration truck shows up. Guys on watch let them in, but as quick vehicles, you know, as, as quick as vehicles are driven across the entrance. The ration truck didn't even stop inside to offload. Besides, all the eggs were smashed, the meat was going bad. They had to get the area commander to come in, come over in person to calm everyone down. But from then on, the ration truck was always on time with good rations and no one had to be held up at gunpoint. Now, that's a bit of a story. I mean, the author of this post says it was 1979, which, although South Africa wasn't in the best position, it wasn't a horrible position, but, you know, it wasn't great. Like, it was, it was one of those not great, not terrible. Now, for those that aren't into their history, for some context, in 1979 in South Africa, there was a decent level of unrest. The year started off with a police crash in Umkonto, uh, Wiswiz. Look, I'm terrible at South African uh, names. This is near Zirust, and they arrested... Uh, police clashed uh, in that area and arrested one while six people escaped into Botswana. Uh, at the same time in January, a bomb exploded near the New Canada Railway Station in Soweto, um, and a large amount of explosives was found diffused on a railway line near Fort Beaufort and King Williamstown. That was in January. In February of that year, Sergeant Benjamin Letlako, a police special branch member, was shot dead in Katelhong. And then in April, explosives were discovered and diffused on a railway line near Soweto. On the 5th of May, guerrillas opened fire in a Morocco police station, killing one and wounding three more policemen and, and three civilians. And by the time June rolled around, the president was forced to resign in scandal, and while there's a bit of stuff going on leading to new president being appointed, explosives were discovered and diffused on a railway line in the eastern Transvaal. By the time September arrives, an American Vela satellite detected a flash in the southern Atlantic Ocean, which to this day is still believed to be a South African and Israeli nuclear test, although this was never proved, it's long suspected. Um, I'd love to do a story on that one day, so it might get someone in that knows a bit more. Um, in November, guerrillas opened fire and hurled grenades in the Orlando police station, uh, killing two policemen and wounding two, and grenades were thrown into the home of a special branch policeman, uh, Lieutenant Magizi Nagabini, and his five children were wounded. Uh, and to finish off 1979 in South Africa, bombings of a ra railway line near Alice and the Saisal oil refinery gave an explosive end to the year. So... That, that gives you some context to when the last two stories sort of happened. Like, where, what was going on 
in South Africa at the time that this was going on when they couldn't really get rations to their men on the border stations. The the country wasn't in the best position. Um, like things would get worse and better over the next couple of decades in South Africa. But that's sort of a bit of context to when this was going on and what was going on in the country at the time. Now on to the next story. Anyone that's ever had to deal with a Q store or supply you know, people will know exactly what this is like. The story wears the title of you're only allowed one new pair of boots every six months and it's a great story of malicious compliance. So before we you know, get, get waffling on, let's get straight into it. This happened back in 1989 when I was in the Navy. When I first checked into my squadron, I was issued a couple of pair of coveralls and a pair of flight deck boots. Now they had special treads to prevent from catching debris like gravel or mud and had steel toes. Being government issued boots, they were relatively low quality and uncomfortable. You could buy your own boots at the time, but I was new and I couldn't really afford to be buying anything extra. Anyways, I worked on the flight line and that was about half a mile long and it was made of rough concrete. I worked an average about five to 10 miles a day, going from aircraft to aircraft doing routine servicing. About four months after I was issued the boots, the soles of the boots wore down to where the tread was bare and the leather on the toes wore out showing the steel inserts. I went down to the supply office to see if I could get another pair of boots. There was an E5 supply clerk in the office who I later found out was a super Karen and was sleeping around with some other personnel. She asked when I got my current pair of boots and I told her, eh, about four months ago. She said I was only allowed new issued boots every six months and if I wanted new boots I had to buy them on my own. Now being a newbie I took her word for it and just left. Looking back I should have told my supervisor but I thought he would have told me the same thing. About a week later the soles at the front of the boots started peeling off and flapping around. Now I got some wire, I sewed the soles back temporarily and I figured they just needed to hold on for a few more weeks so I duct taped around the toes to cover the exposed steel inserts. One day I was helping to unload a helicopter that just came in from a mission. One of the pilots happened to be the squadron's commanding officer. He noticed the duct tape on my boots and asked why I just hadn't got new boots from the supply office. I told him the supply clerk would not issue me any because it's been six months since I got my current pair. He got a disgusted look on his face told me to come with him. We went straight down to the supply office, sternly told the clerk to get me some new boots now. The clerk looked like she was going to cry. She didn't even try and argue with the commanding officer. After she gave me new boots, the CO dismissed me and told me to close the door when I left. I guess she got a royal ass chewing after I left. A few months after this incident, it was winter time. Now San Diego doesn't get too cold, maybe 60-70 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime, about 30 to 40 degrees at night. So after work in the afternoons, we usually didn't need our jackets. Now, I'm just going to jump in here for those in Celsius. That's 15 to 20 degrees Celsius in the day, minus 1 to 4 at night. So I have to say, it sounds pretty cold to me. Um, I personally hated being cold, um, which as a reward in my career, the, the army sent me down to Canberra Pakapanyal. So fuck yeah. Anyways, back to the story. I was hanging out at my buddy's room on Sunday and remembered that I left my jacket at work and saw that my buddy had an extra jacket, so I asked if I could borrow it and give it back to him on Monday after I got my jacket back. He said he didn't need it and I could just have it. The jacket was a Korean War era olive drab field jacket that looked like it came from a GI surplus store. It was nice in the standard issue jacket that I had so I kept wearing it. After a few days later, one of the other squadron personnel came up to me and asked where I got the jacket. I was a bit suspicious, so I jokingly said I stole it off a dead guy. She said it was issued to her and that she'd lost it, and the Karen supply clerk wanted to charge her 100 bucks for the jacket. I said I was sorry, I didn't know it was hers, I gave it back to her, and I had no idea that the squadron issued jackets. There was no name on the jacket or other identifying marks besides a spray-painted small number on the back of the jacket, which I had honestly thought was from the GI surplus store. 
I thought that was the end of it. But well, you know, a week later, I was called into the supervisor's office. I was written up by Karen for stealing the government property. I mean, I was shocked. This meant that I was going to be captain's mast, which was military punishment, and I could potentially have lost rank and pay. Luckily, my supervisor and some other senior personnel vouched for me and said that jackets and other clothing items are often misplaced and worn by other personnel out of convenience. They also said the jacket was surplus gear and was not worth more than maybe 20 bucks. So I was assigned an advocate who was one of the squadron officers. I'll call her Lieutenant Awesome. Um, she was obligated to advise me that I could request a lawyer, but suggested that she had inside information the charges were bogus and that I didn't need a lawyer. Still being new and inexperienced, I was hesitant on not getting a lawyer. That's when she showed me the written support from my supervisor and other personnel. She assured me the charge would be dropped, but could not give me any more details. She was right, and I never heard anything more about the charge. Fast forward about four years later, I was now at E5 at a different squadron stationed out of Virginia and deployed to sea in the Mediterranean. I was a specialist inspector and had to go replace another specialist on another ship because he got sick and was hospitalised. Coincidentally, Lieutenant Orson was one of the pilots on that ship and we had a conversation about the incident. This happened 30 years ago, so my, recollect my recollection may be a little off. According to Lieutenant Awesome, Karen was playing favourites with her friends and would give them supplies off the books. The money she charged people for losing issued gear was probably pocketed by her. On top of that, she was sleeping around with some of the senior personnel. She was under investigation when she wrote me up for the jacket, and that's why Lieutenant Awesome knew it was not gonna, I was not going to be in any trouble. Karen got demoted and kicked out for whatever shady stuff she was doing, Lieutenant Awesome didn't go into too much detail about that, but I'm glad that Karen got what she was deserved. So that was a happy ending. I'm not going to say that every Stormman is doing a dodging, but I, like honestly, personally, like in, in my experience, sometimes warehouse store people are just fucking painful. Like, you know, it's the old, you, you run down to the warehouse or the queue store and go, hey, can I get one of these? And you drop your paperwork on the table. And they'll grumble at you, tell you that you're making them work, they can't sit here and eat their dim sims and drink their strawberry milk, and they get off their ass and they fuck off into the warehouse for an hour. Eventually they come back and say, well, yeah, yeah, we have one. And so you, you again, you, you hand them the paperwork and you go, hey, hey, I want one. And they'll turn around and you go, but you can't have, some, have it in case someone needs it. And you point out that I'm here. I'm someone. I fucking need it. And that's, you know... Everyone who's ever been in the military knows that store people, no matter what military, what service, they're all fucking painful. Um, some of them are good, some of them work their ass off, but for the most part, uh, it's just a mission. Okay, anyways, so that's it for today. We have some more stories ready to go, but we're at basically half an hour. Most of you probably getting to work or getting home or you know, doing what you need to do, so you don't want to listen to me crap on for ages. So that's it for today. Uh, if you want your stories on the pod, please send them into storiesaboutkevinpodcast at gmail.com. We'll get them into an order, get them recorded, get them on an episode. So thanks, guys, and have a great day.